0: This is uh, the fourth in our series of judgment, and I'm going to pretty much wrap it up. Uh And then my intention is to move into some of the fruit of judgment. I don't really like that thought too much. The consequences of judgment, uh how we think about those things. And I want to warn you that when we get to the end of the message today, if I have been remotely successful, it's going to be we're going to be. Challenge to think in terms of meta-narrative in relationship to judgment. So, you guys know what that means, pretty much. Okay, so how do we think about judgment? Richard? You've been gone, you were traveling, and then you went and played around at the hospital, and then you did something else. I don't remember what it was. So, I've saved all 10 of the review slides for you. Now, for those of you listening going, oh my gosh, that's not totally true I was I want to wrap up our thinking about judgment and it's not like there's anything else to talk about it except what we've already talked about because we've laid the foundation in scripture we've laid it with the words and so on and so forth so that's why we have these reviews. there's actually only one new slide so one point to keep in mind is that we must never think of judgment as if it exists apart from God itse- himself. And to do so, think about this, to do so tempts us to define his judgment in terms of our experience or our expectations. And as I've been studying about judgment, thinking about it, teaching a little bit about it, and then listening to people uh, talk, you know, on, on video and, and Facebook and stuff like that, absolutely. Everybody has a pretty complete picture of judgment in their mind. And it doesn't really line up that much with scripture. And I've not heard one person talk about judgment being the light that comes in and exposes stuff. The closest I got was somebody with that vision of a movie screen in heaven when you die and all the stuff in your life scrolls through on that. So I can understand the exposure part of that, but Doing so tempts us to define his judgment in terms of our experience or in terms of our fear and our expectations. And I think that's not a wise thing to do. The second point is Jesus defines judgment as light has come in the world. And then later he declares this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now those two things have to be connected in our thinking. Or we're going to miss something pretty substantial about judgment, right? Judgment is that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. And I'm the light of the world. The same guy said them both, who happens also to be the light. The judgments of the Lord are true and they are righteous altogether. So that's just a reminder that there is a quality to the judgment of the Lord that we don't usually hear about, okay? So here is a simple 10-slide review (laughs) of what we've learned in three short weeks about judgment, right? Okay, it's broken down into words, translation, and meaning, the revelation of God's motive, the work of judgment. What does judgment accomplish? Plus, the new part we're going to look at tonight, which is our hope in judgment. So, let's go. If you remember, if you remember, we've, uh, uh, these are the three uh, word sets, uh, mishpat, chapat, and then the three words there, din and duan and so on, that cover 100% of the revelation of judgment in the Old Testament. And so, mishpat, is fundamentally a verdict. It can be the pronouncement of that verdict or a sentence or anything along those lines. It's used 322 times, or 422 times, and it's translated judgment 322 times. Shapat is the word that's used either as a verb to judge or a definition of a judge. And so that's exactly what it means to pronounce sentence or to judge. And uh, the, the Duans are the ones that talk about judge and judgment Uh, One of them is is Aramaic, and so that's what the differences are there with those. But five hundred thirty-four instances of these words in the Hebrew Old Testament that, or the Hebrew Hebrew Testament that uh, uh, clearly have been translated "judgment." That's eighty percent. Surprisingly, the King James, the one we always turn to to find what was the theology behind, they didn't translate any of these words. Even once, damnation or condemnation. And so, if you remember, one of the first points that I tried to make by looking through the words is that we, we need to really be careful about allowing our, ourselves or allowing somebody on our behalf as a translator or a teacher to say, oh, okay, well, this word means, you know, judgment. When you, this word means condemnation. And if you remember the, the little story, not in the Old Testament, but in the New, uh, where Paul was given instruction about widows. Uh, a number of Bibles translate that don't put a widow on the list because uh they will want to have a family, they'll become desirous to be in relationship, and they will incur condemnation. The strongest word that we can use about what's going on there, and it's just one of the standard words about judgment. So anyway, this is what this whole thing is about. So just keep this in mind. In the end, when I ask us to change the way we plug judgment into our meta-narrative. That we've looked literally at, at every premutation of it. Not that we've done word studies every place that, but this is it. All right. So here's the, the, the words in Greek. Krema, krino, and Combined, they're used 188 times in the New Testament. 163 of those is in the judgment. It's either translated judge, judgment, or so on or it's translated something in that judicial realm, like uh, render a decision, render a verdict, or something along those lines. You can see that the other ones that account for the, uh, what is that, 13% of other uses, is where we get into the idea of condemn and damned. Damnation, that type of thing. So the thought here is, does the fact that 163 out of 100 and 88 uses are translated judicially as judgment or decision or verdict or something, does that give you permission to to go by and check the individual passages that are translated damn, condemn, revenge? And I think it does. That was a conclusion that I presented a couple weeks ago. Now, we've looked at almost all of those, and it's like the one I just told you about. That, uh, a young woman who was put on a widow's list, if she decides to get married again because she broke that vow, she will incur damnation or condemnation is translated in a number of verses. It could just as easily be translated. She will incur judgment. So now the other reason to, to be judicious, not to make a pun <laughs> about using the word condemn, to translate for any of these is because of these five words: kata dikazo, kata krina, kata crema, kata crecios kata genosco. Now, dikazo is a, a word that I think is a little bit like in the 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 rice family. I'm, I'm not 100 sure all the how many prefixes are assigned to that. Ginosko is the knowledge kind of word, and so. But these words are used, uh, I didn't put it up there, let's see, there's five and 18 is 23, and three is 26, and two is 28, and three is 31. So these are used 31 times, actually it's on there, I should have just clicked the button, 31 times, and every time except one, it's translated condemn, condemnation or damned, and that's the word blamed, and that one blamed, if you remember when we looked at it, was where Paul confronted Peter and said he was in the wrong. He was to blame because he had withdrawn once the, the Jewish believers came up and he was not keeping truth about the gospel, and Paul confronted them it. So these five are used 31 times. 30 of them are translated condemn or damned, and the one is blamed. Do you think that these words, condemn or damn, are the real words that convey, or are, are these words are the ones that convey that idea of condemnation? I think so. And, and the point that I want to make out of that is I want you to have permission to challenge those other uses where not katakrino, but krino was translated that. Not katakrima, but krima was translated condemn or damn. And katakrisos is, uh, is condemnation. Katakrisos doesn't need to be. Okay? It doesn't need to be. So the arguments, oh, yeah, but you have to let it have context. Yes, you do have to have, let it have context. So I was listening today to uh, a, an interview that Megyn Kelly was doing with David Horowitz. Uh, I just overheard it while it was downstairs. David Horowitz is a liberal uh, attorney. He's written a book called Get Trump or something like that. What is it? Alan Dershowitz. Oh, I said Horowitz. Alan Dershowitz, right. And so anyway, the part that I thought was interesting is he was pointing out how there's an entirely different application, use of interpreting words that's being, trying to be pl- applied against uh, former President Trump, because they don't like him. And he says, you know, I don't like him either, but I care enough about the law and the meaning of words that you can't do it. And it made me think about a time when I was on, uh, I, actually, I, I was the foreman of a uh, jury trial on murder. A uh, person was murdered. And that was kind of trippy sitting there, you know. Uh, I remember the first sort of jolting thing is we were sitting in the room and, and the judge goes, so you're all here and we're going to go through the jury and explain all that stuff. And it was kind of fun. I mean, sitting there in court, you know, and I was only like 26 years old, I got 28, maybe 30, 30 years old probably. Uh, and he said, so uh, this gentleman uh, is the defendant and he's on trial for murder. And this like chill went up and down my, my back. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to be sitting here. Da, 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 da. The other thing I remember is one of the aspects of the jury instruction was pretty cool. The judge said, uh, so in our country, we operate with the presumption of innocence. And he says, a simple way to think about that is because facts can say a lot of things. So if, if a, a case is made and facts are presented, but there are two plausible interpretations of that facts that don't strain credibility or anything Two plausible. One suggests guilt and one suggests something other than guilt, innocence, stupidity, whatever you are bound by the laws of the constitution of the United States to find the not guilty verdict. And that's how he explained us to think about probable cause. It was powerful. And so it was uh it reminded me of what, what uh, Dershowitz is saying, and it reminds me of what I'm asking you to do here, is if it makes sense that something less aggressive, if there is a word for the more aggressive thing, go ahead and give yourself permission to think about, would this verse be as truthful if it just said judgment? rather than condemnation now if you look at the verses the 31 verses that the, the this, this series of kata words do they don't look that way they're really talking about the Jews wanted to condemn Jesus which was what their purpose was or this was you know going to be condemned in court that's what a lot of these words are about but when you talk about uh, the the times 20 or 30 times that condemn is translated with the crino or Croesus verbs you could read judge in there and it works just the same And I personally think that because judgment is something that our Father does, judgment is something that comes from the God of love and light and uh, fire and love. I missed one, spirit. Uh, I, I think that we owe him the benefit of the doubt about condemnation. And I know a lot of people say, well, that's a stupid way to interpret but I actually have grown to not think it is. I, I, I mean, because what I'm doing is, is when I choose a word condemn, not from this list, but from this, this one, when I choose one of those words for condemn, I am assigning that purpose, not just the act, I'm assigning the purpose and the motive to God. And I think it's, I think we should be careful about doing that. It's really no different than if you need something in your life or you had an accident or, you know, your septic backed up. (laughs) You know, it's no different than going, Why God? Why me? You know, was it God's fault that I didn't pump my septic for 17 years? (laughs) Uh, Could have been. He should have, you know, he could have given me a dream some night. Get up and pump your septic. That isn't really how life works, but we we assign stuff to God that is probably not really His His doing, and so I want to be careful. In this. That's the concept there. Makes sense. All right. So now we want to look at motive. We want to look at motive, and I was obviously just talking about that. So here's the sampling of scriptures that we've looked at that I think are just killer. The first one is in Exodus, and remember we talked about it the very first time we looked at judgment. I was so stunned when God designed the clothes. And if you remember, when he talked to Moses about designing Aaron's clothes, he said it is for glory and beauty. He specifically designed the clothes so that Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So let me read the whole scripture. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart. When he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually, you shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Therm, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes on in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now, we looked at this after we looked at the words Mispa and, and Spa, and we came to realize that very, very often, maybe, well, actually, I think it is a majority of time, there's a very positive inference about judgments. Just think about the words used for judgment when, uh, down here, when the judges came to pass. That wasn't fundamentally negative. They were to judge Israel, protect Israel, deliver Israel. So, very positive. But the, the reason this Exodus passage is so important, and we need to give it weight, I think, is because everything about God's developing relationship with his people was symbolic and being portrayed symbolically and powerfully and consistently. From the building of the tabernacle, the way that... The, the inner court was made, the Holy of Holies was made, specific direction. And you remember we look back to one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit in the past was the, uh, inspiration of Bezalel and, and the Holy Spirit was working to make sure that God and his, who he was could be known in the midst of this pagan world, in the people of Israel, in their worship, in their tabernacle, and all these things. So there's a point to this. And one of the points, we can draw some stuff from it. So unless you are willing to think, which I don't think anybody in here is intentionally trying to do that, but unless you're willing to think that the the sort of representation that that last line represents, that they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord, and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually, it is unimaginable to me That the primary message of that was that God was trying to make it so that Aaron constantly had this anger and agitation, frustration, and vision of the shortfall of, of Israel on his heart. I just can't imagine it. I just cannot imagine it. Now, if you can, then you can probably make a case for that, and I'm more willing to listen. But just keeping in mind that the declaration given to Moses, I want you to make, Garments and make them holy after this pattern I give you for Aaron and for uh, his sons. And they will be for glory and beauty. I think that's beautiful. I think understanding that passage is to realize that God took Israel in his heart and he wanted a perpetual symbol, even with the sacrifices, even with the Day of Atonement. Here's why we're doing this because your on my heart. And it was called the breastpiece of judgment. I think that's amazing. All right, the judge's situation. Also, these two verses sum up the, the downfall of Israel after Joshua died. I mean, after Moses died and Joshua died and the men who were leaders during the times of Joshua. So then after the death of Joshua and his elders, The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. They just flipped. I don't know how long it took exactly. You can't read it really from that passage of scripture, but they started worshiping Baal. And God's response to that heinous idolatry was revealed in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the worship of Baal brought Brought, uh, consequences on them, brought slavery on them, but God's reaction to it was not one of anger and, and, and wrath in that sense. He raised up judges and the concept of judges, the institution of judges to deliver them. Here's another one. This one I think is just freaking amazing. Now you have to see this in the, in the original language. And the only one that really sticks to that real close is Young's literal, but Isaiah nine six and seven is just an amazing passage to me. It's a quintessential passage. It talks about the central role that Jesus plays in revealing the Father. And so, just look at what it says: for a child, uh, for a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and the princely power or the government is what a lot of translations do. And I'm showing you do this is on his shoulders, and he doth call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. To the increase of that princely power or government and of peace there is no end. On the throne of David and on his kingdom. To establish it and support it. And look at the the pairing here. In judgment and in righteousness. That couplet could have been any words that illustrated what God was going to do to bring about the kingdom. And to maintain the increase and the peace of it forever. Judgment was one of the two things he chose and righteousness was the other. Again, if judgment is presumed to destroy, if the, if the direct primary consequence of judgment is destruction, it can't fit in that verse because it's designed To perpetuate the kingdom in that peace. Now, is it possible that some people have to be judged and destroyed to keep the kingdom on the straight? Yeah, you can interpret that way. I I understand how people do it. But I just, it's just one more little link in the chain here about what is judgment really for? What is it trying to accomplish? And, And in his heart is to sustain the work that he gave his son for using judgment and righteousness. Here's another one. Look at the pairings in here. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony is of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You see how those two things aren't against somebody, they're for them. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. These are all additives. They're all blessings, right? Okay, but now we get to judgment, so that'll, that'll balance the scales. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Kind of reminds you of the previous verse in Isaiah. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. There's that pairing. But look at the set up of these verses. There's this significant thing that comes from God, and there is a blessing. There is a significant thing that comes from God, and there is a blessing. There is a significant thing, and there is a blessing. And and they're all blessings that stir our life in the right direction. Restoring the heart. That means my heart's kind of, uh, you know, uh, making wise the simple. It's adding good stuff. Judgment of the Lord are true. there are right. all together. And then they, let's just assume that it's not talking specifically about judgment. I'm good with that. But let's assume that it's just those sets of things. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, and much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Now, I can go back and I can look at a few of these things. Does the law of the Lord have the ability to point out hidden faults? Of course it does. Right? Revelation. How about the testimony of the Lord? Yes, because it can make wise the simple. A simple person might just wander down a dark path, right? The precepts of the Lord cause the heart to rejoice. The commandment of the Lord, enlighten the eyes, because if you're stuck in the darkness, yes, it's positive. Fear of the Lord's clean and prepared. How about the judgments? They're righteous together. These things so what if we apply judgment as one of the tools of God that flow from his motive? What if we apply judgment? As a tool that helps acquit me of hidden faults, that helps us understand. I think keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. well, dose of judgment will help that <laughs> right? okay? Let the words of my mouth and meditating be said so now this is one that we looked at, uh, and i, I I'm, I've talked about this a number of times, but I still can't get away from the beauty of it when we were looking. Uh, at Gehenna to try to understand what Jesus was talking about when he said the fires of Gehenna and whether or not hell deserved to have a second look as the best English translation of the word Gehenna. One of the things we ran across is that a lot of the detail we find out about the Valley of Hinnom and all the disasters that went on there are from the prophet Jeremiah as well as the historical books and chronicles. So Jeremiah 31 is the prophecy about the new covenant that we live in. You know, I'm going to write my my word in their heart and mind. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. uh, Culminating with, I'm not going to remember their sins anymore. Jeremiah 33 is Jeremiah's rendition of the fulfillment of this judgment that was necessary on Israel because they had begun to worship Molech. They had worshipped Baal. They had taken worship instruments into the temple. Uh, Remember, Josiah came up and was doing these righteous reforms and he, he sought the Lord through the priest's wife. And the Lord said, I will prevent these, this judgment from coming on you, but but for your lifetime because of your righteous deeds. But Israel is going to Babylon. Exile is going to happen. Judgment is a serious thing. But anyway, in the midst of this, Jeremiah had just been going on before this and we're going on after about the judgment. And this is what God says. And I just want to bring it up to us again. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Concerning this city of which you say, and I think that's funny because Jeremiah was just prophesying what God gave him to say. But of what you say, it is given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So he's talking about the exile of Jerusalem and the Jews. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. Does God have anger, wrath, and indignation? Absolutely. Does it lead to judgment? Yes, it does. But look at what was in his heart behind the whole thing. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, my wrath, and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always because I really deserve that. No, that isn't what it says. That's not God's motive. Now, he, he's righteous, so he deserves to be worshipped, right? I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Something about the exile to Babylon was in the heart of God for the good of the people, not just as punishment. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Have you ever heard anybody try to teach us? I have not. About the fear of God saying that it begins with God as a gift that he puts in our hearts so that it will be good for us. I've not heard people teach. I'm not saying nobody does. But to me, the fear of God has always been taught as a bulwark against the wrath and the anger and the judgment of God. But what God says is, I'm going to put it in you for your sake. What's in God's heart? He doesn't want them to turn away. And I will rejoice over them to do good, do them good, and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now, I don't want to make too much of that phrase. I will faithfully plant them in this land with how much of my heart, how much of my soul. I got in a debate with a guy one time uh, over the, it was a little bit of a debate. He was kind of a debater. Uh, over the soul, and this was a verse that I I looked up and said, God has a soul, so we may not fully understand what a soul is if the way we just talk about it is our mind, will, and emotions. Anyway, it's a rabbit trail. Nevertheless, what if we let that, at the end of verse 41, just mean what it says? That this rejoicing to do good over them and faithfully plant them in the land with all my heart and my soul really reveals the inner nature of God's heart about this exile. I am going to go to almost every length to make sure that they will fear me and that they will come back. Did it work? Ultimately it did, as a part of the great redemptive plan. It is in the process of being worked out in Jesus. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all these disasters on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Judgment, I think, plays a role in going from where we are to where God wants us. And I don't think that's too much of a stretch. That's what I want us to understand. So when we think about judgment, so many people have been taught it, and so much of the church culture has grown up around the assumption that judgment is something that happens at the end of a failed life, or at the end of maybe a good life, and you get you know. But anyway, I think judgment is something that is meted out to be sure, with the help of God, we get to the destiny that He has for us.
1: No, I appreciate the heart motive and everything that you're saying. I'm. I just find it pretty striking. In 42, I bring disaster. It's a pretty strong Uh word. So, how do you, I guess, how do you look at that? God is imposing consequences? I do,
0: I do. In other words, I think there's a temptation to look like God was the author of their idolatry. I don't think that. I think he was the... He was the one that brought the consequences for that idolatry on them. And I think that's an important point for us to think about when we think about judgment, because again, what I'm looking at here is, you know, what is the motive of God? What is God trying to do? When he, when he brought that, when he brought that disaster, this great disaster, and it was a great disaster. I mean, oh my gosh, they were uprooted from their country. Many of them were killed in the process. A whole generation died there probably, uh, cause they were there for 70 years. So, it was another, I repeated the thing in the wilderness. So it's stupid for us to try to make that not serious. Mm-hmm. But the purpose of it was a consequence that was brought on because they were doing something that would eternally separate them from God. And that's another issue we're going to have to talk about at some point. Is So... Does it make a difference whether you're judged in this life and die and go to hell? Or does it, you know, is there a, a longer target going on here that may include this stuff bearing good fruit eventually? And, and I don't see how we can not talk about, it. we've already talked about, you know, some, but, uh, yeah, so there's another place that's good to look at. If you go back and read where uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple, there's paragraph after paragraph that follow this pattern. Lord, because of our sin, if we get taken into captivity, if we turn and pray to this place, have mercy on us and deliver us. Lord, if because of our sin, we are captured uh, by enemies and stuff. In other words, we sin, bad stuff happens, and we come to you for redemption. That was the whole theme of Solomon's dedication to the temple just before the glory, the of glory of the Lord came so that nobody could minister. I think it's the same thing. I think this is a pattern in the heart of God. He puts up, he forbears, he endures. People burning their children. <laughs> you know, people, he, he endures nations that abort millions of kids. Is there a consequence for that? Yes. Is the consequence purely punitive? No. Because I did this, but I'm also going to bring on them all the good I intended. And part of that purging, apparently for Israel, was going to Babylon.
1: Yeah, so I would just say earlier in my Christian life, mm-hmm. I looked at God as you know throwing lightning bolts down and all that. And then I've come to a place where I don't think God puts bad things on people. Mm-hmm. So I guess a a mixture here is really imposing consequences like a parent would discipline children to protect them for good. And so that's why there'd be things like sometimes jail serves a purpose.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you don't, uh, you know, the the, the punishment for feeling too big for your britches and sassing your parents back is not the same thing for starting a life that's going to lead you to become... A thief or a murderer, you know, and, and so how does, how does love respond to that? And that's one thing to keep in mind. All this stuff comes out of God, who is love. And the process of having that revealed in process, to me, I think, suggests that God is trying to get us to a different destiny than we would choose to go on on ourselves with our sin. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, then I just want to know, because you're going to do this and then you're going to do one more. Are you going to get into justice at all and, and what that aspect means? Or Maybe
0: not? Uh, as a part of, yeah, I think it's a part of judgment, and puni- I mean, it's part of uh, punishment and okay. reward. Okay. Yeah, we'll try, definitely. Okay, so anyway, I think this is an astounding passage. To me, it's like Israel's being judged, Israel's going to be in exile, blah, 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 it's going to happen. Here's a glimpse inside my heart about the long game. I did this. This is inevitable. It's, it's not an option that I can pull this from you. So this is going to be a judgment. And then when you think about the, the thing that like NT Wright talks about in the new creation and so on, what really needs to be forgiven? Well, it's, it's this. It's, it's exile. It's the fact that now what is exile? Exile is being away from the land. God still went over there, but they weren't able to worship. They weren't able to interact with him. They weren't able to represent him to the world in in any kind of cohesive way. All right, so what is God doing in the works of judgment? There's another player involved in these kind of behaviors, right? So Jesus answered and said, this voice is not, this is in John 12, has not come for uh, my sake but for yours. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So there's a link between judgment here and the casting down of the principalities and powers of Satan, if you want to put it that way, which is probably pretty legitimate to put, uh, you know, rulers and so on and so forth. Down here in John 16, we see this. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, then the helper won't come to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, obviously. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I love this because Jesus knew Our propensity. If I say I'm going to convict you of something, you're going to start feeling bad. (laughs) You're going to start feeling like, oh, he's going to point out something going on in my life that's wrong. No. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So do you see how this lives alongside God's promise in the new covenant that I'm not going to count your sins against you anymore? remember your sins. That doesn't mean we don't need Jesus. Jesus is the issue. He is the answer. He is the presence. He is what all this stuff was about. He is the child that was given, the son that was born. His kingdom, the one resting on him, is being maintained by judgment and righteousness. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because they go be with the Father. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So all I'm trying to say with this connection here is that the target of judgment, if there is a punitive target to it, isn't you and I first. It's the enemy. It's the enemy that is behind our motives. So first is him casting down the ruler of this world. Then there's a related one here. So here's John, first chapter. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So light's coming into play, right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, I don't know what all that darkness describes. I don't know what all it means. Uh, Does it mean just a general darkness with no personalities attached? Maybe, but I doubt it. Does it mean the darkness that is the domain of darkness that the the devil has captivated people with, but lies? Probably. Does it mean the darkness that we have embraced, that we have chosen to live in? I think so. So, Jesus came as the light. And then later, he describes to Nicodemus, this is judgment, that lights come in the world. It's right down here. But let's just keep going. So the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it, understand it, pull it down, tear it down, hold on to whatever. There came a man sent from God. Those are just all the semantic range of the Greek word there. There came a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And then now speaking back again about the Logos, speaking back about the word, speaking back about Jesus, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That line right there, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, is the problem that judgment addresses. It's not the problem that judgment punishes primarily. Judgment addresses it. Okay? Jesus goes on to say, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Now, I don't want anybody to to think that I'm arguing that judgment is not serious, that having darkened hearts is not serious, that sinning is not serious, but this is what Jesus is saying judgment is engaged in. Light has come into the world. Right there, we're hearing about it, right? that's He's reflecting on the revelation that John is giving us. Light came into the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. This is judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light. Why? Because they fear that his deeds, which are evil, will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. Why? So that those deeds that he does can be shown to have been birthed in God, wrought in God, flowing out of here. Think about Ephesians where it talks about the works prepared beforehand for us to do. Who prepared them? God did. Works are not bad. When they're twisted, they can get way off course. We see it in government, where you know, obviously people who have gifts of leadership, the gifts and callings of God, are without repentance, right? But they get horribly twisted around. We see religious people who start cults and sleep with everybody that they can pin against the wall. I mean, it's horrible. But but that doesn't mean that the design. Being made as an image bearer and having various gifts distributed among these image bearers, that doesn't mean that there's not that solid destiny, that solid purpose in there. However perverse it gets, judgment attacks that. Judgment is a tool to attack it and change it and deliver that person from the twisting and the perversion of that judgment. He who practices the truth comes to light so his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Yes, Dan. Here, I'll take it over to him. Here.
2: There we go. Oh, you got
0: it? Okay, good. Becky, there. you're pretty flexible. You're adaptable. Way
2: to go. I feel like 20 is kind of a, a key hint. Um, because when we're in the darkness, part of what we kind of work a, a whole pathology, we hang out with our other dark friends mm-hmm. and what we're doing, so there's a comfort And we fear exposure because, and that goes back again, because if we're in the darkness, we don't understand who God is. So then there's shame and condemnation, which aren't from God. Right. But they're in our own mind. We believe that if we're exposed, the result will be shame and condemnation, and judgment, whatever, pick your word.
0: And then you attach a a vague kind of unspecified image of authority around God, and then it becomes this eternal mess. Right. Um,
2: so then I have to go hide more, right? and I have to keep away from these things. But then 21 is our, you know, actually 21 is an alternative. But the idea there that they're not really saying that's implied is if we understand who God is, the exposure gives a reality to who I really am. So what God's trying to say is, this is who I say you are, and let me show you that you're not there so that you can walk in the health and the life that yeah. I want to give you.
0: Well, and I think that I think that there's a reason for that mm-hmm. that we're going to get to in just a second. Uh, but I agree with you totally. And I love the word pathology because a pathology suggests that there are interrelated factors that mushroom yeah. and keep momentum going. Right. And I think that is exactly what judgment is designed to right. invade.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you go to any counseling, right, they're going to go work back to the root and the root and the root because... What we see here isn't really the issue. Mm-hmm. There's some other issue, you know. Right. And what God's trying to expose is this is what you're doing. Let's go look at who you are. Let's go find the real issues so that you can truly know. Yeah, I think you
0: know. you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's what gets revealed in here. So the work that judgment is trying to do is and and, and I think doing successfully is overcoming, exposing and overcoming our darkness and our blindness. It's not just punishing the consequence of that blindness. It is attacking it with light. And who is light? Jesus is light. God is light, right? Yes, Teresa.
3: So, so I was, um, especially in this last part where it says, he who practices the truth. And when you were talking about the difference between condemnation and conviction Mm -hmm. i looked up the word conviction because a lot of times we feel like that's related to like a guilty verdict Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's the first um definition but the second um is a strong persuasion or belief a state of being convinced or the act of convincing a person of error or compelling the admission of truth Mm -hmm. Um, a state of being convinced of error or compelled to admit the truth. And so if you think about conviction being that mm-hmm. rather than condemnation, which brings like shame and guilt, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's the truth that brings us to the light.
0: Right, you right. Know, so
3: it kind of kind of goes together.
0: You know, and even instinctively uh, in our culture, we think about the whole convict idea that way. And I'm not trying to make just a wordplay out of it, but even even a convict – a person who is incarcerated is there is a rehabilitative, for the most part, thing. Even if there's punitive elements, in other words, a successful stint in jail changes you, right, Richard? Richard had a pretty neat encounter with the Lord that took advantage of a little momentary convict situation. No, but this, I, 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 it's not a stretch to think of God this way. Do we deserve to be in jail? Yeah, we probably do some things that deserve to be in jail. Does God have a purpose for that if we end up going there like the nation Israel did into exile? Apparently, because he made it a real point in the middle of a guy who had no intention of prophesying any mercy at all, if you read the rest of Jeremiah's prophecy. So the Lord was pretty great. And Jeremiah is pretty cool too. Okay, so number two is exposing and overcoming darkness. Here's this one. John 12, further on down from where we look, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. So there's a union between Jesus and the Father that plays itself into drawing us into relationship with the Father, right? All of us here know, one way or another, that Jesus' primary emphasis when he came was to reveal the Father. He's the one that introduced, he's the Father, he's the Father, he's the Father, he's the Father. Father. Father." How should we pray? Pray this way, our Father. Hey, don't call any other man your father because you have a father in heaven. That was a revelation. Nobody knew that. You know, the father, the father, the father. All right. Uh, Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Again, this communion. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Two phrases there. I have come as light into the world. Think back to what he said to Nicodemus. This is judgment, that light has come into the world. Jesus was self-defining what he did, who he was, and what he was here for. Then he goes on to make this claim. So that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. I could have used this scripture under the motive section. God's reason for sending Jesus so that we would not remain in darkness so that we would come under the influence of the light that enlightens the heart of every man. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Do you see how this parallels with what he said in John chapter 3? God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him should be saved. Does judgment have to happen? Yes. Because we are Trapped in darkness. We have that pathology going on in our lives, and it has to be interdicted. It has to be. Okay, good. Okay, good. I love it when you make connections.
2: With the restorative justice. Um, so let's look at Israel. They start burning their children, worshiping Baal, Asherah, and all that kind of stuff. The people who are supposed to be doing justice, righteous, and goodness is the religious structure and facilities, right? The mm-hmm. priests and all that. They sold out, mm-hmm. and they're part of the problem. So there is no one to bring justice and turn right. to righteousness. So what God does is he brings in punitive. I'm going to smack you down.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Basically, that's triaging or stopping the bleeding. Yeah. Now, once they're out... They can start to go, hey, we don't like this. Yeah. And then they can start to analyze, we're in a problem situation. What should we do? Now the restoration can start to happen. But we have to have the triage or the stop the hemorrhaging, Mm -hmm. which is, I'm going to drag you to another country and put you in slavery. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we have to stop
0: you want And if you want to run a parallel and something yeah. we would relate to today, uh, I mean, that's why you get strapped down to a gurney or you get one of those braces put on you or they have to do surgery. I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's because there's something else going on. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie Jesus Revolution, I encourage you to go see it, but there was a little in, uh, incident of this. If you remember, uh, one of the gals, and I don't want to give too much away about who it was and everything, but one of the gals' sister, they were at a house doing some acid, and she almost died. She went into a seizure and did all this kind of stuff. That, even without it being overdone in the movie, that kind of steered this girl in the right direction, her sister, because she realized, and, you know, they said, what's wrong with you? Well, my sister almost died. You know, there was a consequence to going the wrong way, being engaged and committed to the wrong pathology. I love that. That is a great way to talk about why judgment is is here. And why we should be thrilled by it, even if we are kind of scared of it and ashamed that we need it. Because it's our Father's love. He's the very light of the judgment in Jesus. Pretty special. That's great, Dan. Huh? It sets you free, absolutely. absolutely. And you can't know the truth when you are in darkness. And the reason is because the nature of darkness is that you don't see what's there. I used to think that the nature of like the darkness that's in the enchanted forest in and, in and a and place like the, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia or or um, Lord of the Rings or something. What does the darkness do in a forest? It doesn't make the trees turn into something different and haunt you. It blinds you. To the root laying on the trail. And so you fall. It blinds you to the, the darkness. If it's really dark, you can't see the branch hanging down, so you poke your eye out when you run into it. It's a, sorry about that, Becky, I didn't even think. <laughs> it's a natural. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. It's uh you but you see what I'm saying? We assign a personality to darkness, like, mm, no, I'm gonna trick you and do this. No. I'm just gonna, you know, just Cover your eyes and start running through the alley. You'll end up running into a dumpster. It's just the way it is. Light eliminates that necessity. Sometimes it even eliminates that possibility because inside we're not built to run into dumpsters. And if we know we're gonna, we're not. Everything starts working together. So uh, that's why Jesus doesn't say this. And then he says this. Uh, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world to save it, but he rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The words I spoke is what will judge him on that last day. There's so much to unpack from there. I don't have time to do it. But you see what I'm saying? The very words. So this image of God standing up there uh, as a as a faceless being with lightning bolts and all this kind of stuff, that is not the nature of judgment that we can expect at all. The, the judgment of the day of the Lord. Jesus said it in other ways. He says, you know, you're going on and on, but it's the very words of Moses that are going to judge you, said to the Pharisees. You know? And then that's why he can say, my father's not going to judge anybody. He's given all judgment to the son. Then I abdicated the responsibility and let my words do the judgment because I'm here to save you. That's probably not his motive, but it's the way to think about it. All right. And then Colossians. Look at this. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. What is the work of judgment? And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, who we know he himself is the light that came into darkness to enlighten the heart of every man, right? There's this loop. Jesus' is the issue. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. There's a lot to talk about there. Judgment is not an alternative to the forgiveness of sins. Judgment is a part of the process that allows sins to be forgiven, redemptive. And we're going to have to get our thoughts around that as we keep pursuing. What do we expect from judgment? All this kind of stuff. Uh, judgment is not that. Okay. So the third work is delivering his kids from darkness. That's what judgment is for. It's not necessary for balancing the scales of righteousness in the ages. It's not. God's not we've never put him out of balance. We don't have that ability. We're out of balance. We can create pathologies for us, but not for him. Yes, sweetie. Vicki, sorry.
4: Hi, honey. Uh yeah. I was <clears throat> excuse me. I was just thinking about darkness. And I think for most of us, when we think about darkness, we think like it's dark, you know, like the sun sets and it gets really, really dark, but darkness has levels. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, as we walk into judgment, if we're aware that, you know, all of a sudden a cloud is over us and the light has dulled, um, maybe, we should immediately <laughs> go papa what's going on and then you know sometimes it's twilight and you go wow why why am i why do i feel this why why is this heaviness on me and and of course and then there's you know but there's levels to darkness that light can come in and illumine and we can do that through being very careful of understanding when darkness is coming into our lives by the idea of the levels of darkness that are actually in the
0: earth. Right. Right. So no, I think know. so. I, I, the reason I backed up is I think that's what that last line in twenty one. The alternative it gives us means he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may manifest. So if you practice the truth, if you run into something, are we going to run into something where we've made a wrong judgment and wrong call? Absolutely. If our response to that is what. If our response to that is the true meaning of repentance, where, oh my gosh, I see this, I'm going to back away from this, Lord, sorry. That's what this happens. All of a sudden, the very light that is judgment begins to prove, hey, I remember, you know, Dan Muller says this probably better than anybody. A person gets saved, and then they quit doing drugs, and they quit chasing money, and they quit doing whatever they're doing. And then they have a little stumble, and they feel horrible about it, and they come and, and they say, I thought, I thought I was different. He goes, you are different. No, I, I, I slipped into the same thing. He goes, you used to didn't slip into that. You ran into it. You, that was your normal way. That was your, Dan's never said this, but that was your pathology. Now you brush up against it one time and you, you realize it's wrong and you back away. You're different. Judgment has had its work in that area. And it still is. So anyway, that's cool, Vic. All right. So what's our hope? This is the uh, first slide that actually is about tonight. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So, he who believes in him, he who doesn't believe in him, that's a way to talk about that pathology that you've talked about, Dan. So is belief important? Absolutely. Is it's, it's everything, you know. Is receiving important? Absolutely it is. This is judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And the reason is because everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Now, what's the big deal about this? Is it just our pathology that we don't have as good a life as we could have if we lived better? No. Look at this in First John. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk with darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. What did it say on the previous verse? Next verse, 21. But he who practices the truth, believes the truth, comes to God. What is at stake here is not correcting our bad behavior. Not fundamental. What is at stake with judgment is not balancing the scales of the universe. What is at stake in judgment is that every single one of us and everyone we know was created to have intimate, unfettered fellowship with God. And it cannot happen if you carry darkness in you into it. It cannot. And no amount of substitutionary theology is gonna equip us to stand if we still possess darkness in the, in the glory of the Lord any more than it would allow a moth to fly into your wood stove while it's on. We have to change. Judgment is a mechanism that allows us to change Allah Israel in exile to Babylon but not be excluded from the promises. Allah, I will bring every good thing upon them because I, their father, their God, their Yeshua, right? Their salvation, I will put my fear in them. I will do this good thing for the sake of them and their children in kind Mosque of stuff. I don't pretend to fully understand how it all happens. I don't, but what's at stake here is not punitive Retribution. It's not just correction. It is the deliverance from darkness that cannot coexist in fellowship with God who is light. Because he's not just light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Now, if we jumped ahead, just, uh, um, three more chapters, we get to the part where it's the love of God coupled with the light of his judgment and presence. That prepares us to not be afraid of punishment in the last days. Judgment is in a—it's a role, it's a manifestation of the very presence of God in every person's life. However, however easy you come when you see it, oh, oh man, there's a shadow. This is not right, Lord. What's going on? Do you think that God won't respond to that kind of repentance? Has He ever not responded to that in your life? But it's the one who plows ahead thinking that darkness is their normal way of life. That it's eventually going to face a more severe trauma, a more severe, what'd you call it? Triage. Yeah, that's a good thought. I like that. All right. Darkness this is the thought I had. You can take it for what it's worth. Darkness, living in darkness, holding on to darkness, Contemplating, fondling, playing with, loving. Darkness is the alternative the devil offers you and I, not to living like a goody two-shoes. It's the alternate to living in fellowship with God himself. What the devil wants to do is have you trade what you were made for, which was to be in God. For living in darkness. Therefore, what is judgment? We got two things working hard here in these images, right? We have God who is love and we have God who is light. Love extending light in darkness is judgment. So this is kind of a little experimental rewrite, because I love to be rewriting things and accused of heresy. Judgment is our God and Father, revealed in Jesus, whose life is the light enlightening the heart of every man, manifest in our darkness to bring about our deliverance and healing, resulting, and I ran out of room, but it could be resulting in our destiny and God's desire. Creative desire for unhindered fellowship with Him. Judgment is the key. It's the tool. It's the process to guarantee that we can have unhindered fellowship with God. So we don't have time to do this now because that took a lot longer than I thought. But just the way we looked at various other gospel passages, can we upgrade our meta narrative? That little, whatever the phrase is in our talking about the big story behind the story, can we upgrade that to redefine judgment as a manifestation of the love of God through the light of who he is as light with no darkness at all so that we can have uncompromised fellowship. And my picture of uncompromised fellowship is is a scene, and I think it can happen in this life too, and I think judgment plays a role in it, just like repentance in response to that plays a role in it or the the trauma, the triage, the, oh my gosh, the consequences. I think all is there, but I've told you guys this before. I envision a time, standing in the age to come, where I'm going to hear the procession of, of God coming around the corner. And I'm going to be, I'm going to have all kinds of options, I suppose, if I were to think like I think today, where I might want to run and hide because I just don't know. But when God comes around the corner, he takes my face and he looks in my eyes. And with omniscience, he says, Becky, I find no fault. There's no darkness in you. That's not because Becky's been particularly good that day or better than me or you. That's because he's done his work. And remember, we started this whole crazy discussion by just asking, what the heck did John the Baptist mean when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? This is what he meant. No darkness. No sin. Transformation. So, any last thoughts before we let the long, pent-up kid out? Yes, Ronnie. Okay, hang on a second, Jeremy. Which one? Yeah, sure. Oh, okay, picture. Yes, Jeremy, my friend.
5: Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, when you started, Pastor, you referenced the word "fruit" briefly, and you seem to not like that word in this conversation. Do uh, you remember saying that?
0: about the fruit of judgment or something like that, I think.
5: Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, The reason that stuck with me is uh, uh, it's been a fascinating, really well-presented topic that I I don't think it's it's one that is a one-and-done sort of deal by any means. And in terms of our better understanding of what judgment is like from the Trinity's perspective, um, I... I I think there's room for one of two things to happen. Either, either there's a lot more judgment that goes on behind the scenes that we are completely blind to, or there's a lot less judgment of God when you consider the fruit that we have the ability to create in our life, whether that's good fruit, bad fruit. um, We're an active piece of that, and that can change very quickly. You know, that's why. The sowing and reaping process is so fascinating to me because it's, I guess, from my perspective, it really does seem like that is the God in us that he gave us that sort of creative nature to impact our world around us. And so I don't know that I have a question as much as a um, an exploration in my own mind of, is there more? fruit that we are just creating in our life that has consequences, mm-hmm. and as a result, it's not God that we can point to say, well, this happened, so God must be doing this. It's just the, the nature of, of who we are, not separated from Him, but part of Him, and as a result, He gives us the freedom to experience the world that we create around us. And like I said, I don't have a question for it, uh, but it does seem like that's somewhere in this, a part of a part of the topic,
0: I guess. Yeah, I think I think related to this is the concept of God's forbearance, that He passed over sins for a while. And when you think about God squaring things in the traditional sense that we think about judgment, there's a component to that for sure. But some of the nations that did what they did, they. The consequence of that didn't come for hundreds of years, and you know, if God was in it, if I was God, and you did me wrong, I'd make sure you knew it just a couple seconds before you did it, <laughs> you know, and and and. But it's not exactly that way, so that's why I've been trying to concentrate, Jeremy, on what is the motive behind this in God, and how much weight do we give that to it? Honestly, most of the people that I know that talk about it, they don't give it any weight. They, they just attribute another attribute to God or one of his attributes. Like, well, he's just, you know, and we'll get into that more. So he's bound by justice. I don't think so. I think he's bound by love. And he's self-bound by love. Yeah, Teresa.
3: So my question is, is all of this is like based on the if you believe, So if you believe in him or you believe in Mm -hmm. the light. So what happens to the people who don't?
0: My guess is the Holy Spirit will convict them for not doing that, according to John 16. That that's an ongoing process that works in everybody's life ever since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. That was the promise. When he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will convict you of sin, righteousness, or judgment of sin because you don't believe in me. What does that look like in a person's life who is just running wild without believing Jesus? What does it look like in a person who lives in a country that has no witness of the gospel? Well, they do have a witness of the gospel. It's called the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. I don't know how it works, really. But I think, you know, every now and then we get in tricky topics where we need faith to believe. And I think that's one of them. So, it's a good question. Question. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) I could have gone more. No, not really.